in the midst of a series of teachings out of Ecclesiastes. And if you've read Ecclesiastes recently, maybe you got to the end of the book and were scratching your head and wondering, what is this all about? It's a difficult book. It's a book that has been described, or at least I saw it described as enigmatic. It's mysterious. It's difficult to interpret and to understand. And I think uh, the author, um, who is Solomon, he calls himself the preacher, but we presume that it's Solomon. I think the author actually knew that it was difficult and maybe even intended for the book to be perplexing uh, because we live in a perplexing world. We live in a world that is full of difficulties and challenges and bewilderment. If you want plain vanilla, pat answers for the difficulties and bewilderment that you face, Ecclesiastes is not the book for you. And quite frankly, the Bible is not the book for you. There's a lot of help, self-help books you can get to give you those kinds of answers. Um, Ecclesiastes does give us answers to the perplexities of life, but not the kind of answers you'd find on um, you know, a list like 10 Secrets to a Successful Life or something like that. Actually, Ecclesiastes gives us better answers than that, but we have to want them. Uh, what does it say in Proverbs? It's the, you know, God is, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Solomon uses the phrase under the sun several times in this book. I think I counted like 24, 25 times in 12 chapters. He uses the phrase under the sun. And this is a phrase that's really important for us to understand. We live under the sun. We don't see everything from down here, right? Would you agree with that? There's a lot that we don't see. There's a lot going on that we just aren't privy to seeing. There are severe limitations under the sun. Limitations of what we perceive, limitations of what we can do physically, limitations of what we can know intellectually, limitations emotionally, and so forth. Really, limitations in every way we experience. And these limitations, along with the deep perplexities of our personal lives and outside of us, the life in this world, it gives us a sense of futility. Like, what's going on? What's this all about? Let me give you an example. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.15. It says, this is Solomon speaking, he said, In my vain life, I have seen everything. I've seen it all. And then he gives us an example. You ever heard someone say, I've, listen, I've seen it all. And then they tell you a story. This is one of the things they've seen they really want you to know that's going to blow your mind. Solomon says, I've seen it all. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now we've seen this happen. Maybe you've seen it up close. Perhaps someone you knew and loved dearly died young, at least relatively young. And they died while doing good, living a righteous life, living for Christ. And then you know another person that just seems to go on living forever and ever and ever. And their life seems to be prolonged 
by sinning. Of course, we understand that sin has messed everything up, right? We live in a sin-soaked world. We live in a world that's fallen and so forth. And so that's one way we would answer this. But I think Ecclesiastes helps give us other answers, a big answer that we're going to talk about today. Solomon wrote this book, or at least I should say, I don't think Solomon wrote this book as a man caught in the vice grip of sin, some view Ecclesiastes as that. Solomon, what, like look at Solomon. He had a thousand concubines. How can we trust anything he says? And of course, <laughs> there's a good point there. But I don't think Ecclesiastes is written by a man in the grip of sin and therefore is full of bad theology. Rather, I think it's written by an older Solomon who is humbled and repentant And I think Ecclesiastes has a profound and sober theology that's helpful for us. So what Reed and I are doing, you know, Reed's taken a couple Sundays already, and I'm going to teach, and then we have a few more times we're going to teach in Ecclesiastes. We're trying to draw out some of the main big picture themes in Ecclesiastes. And I think when we see how they're woven together, um, we see that this book gives us joyful and serious help in a fallen, feudal, baffling world. And that's the kind of help we need. So that brings me to, the, to our subject for today, which is God's providence. God's providence. We sang it just, and I didn't even, I, I'd never connected Waymaker. God's working even when we see it, even when, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it which I think we all would say, I hope that's true. It is true. But I've never connected that with just his providence like I did just this morning, singing it. People used to talk, I think Christians used to talk about providence more than they do today. It seemed like people really relied upon divine providence. In fact, I think that's, is that the opening words of the Declaration of Independence? I think and firm reliance upon divine providence. People talked that way. They used to talk that way and really rely upon providence, which I'll define that in just a minute. I don't think we do as much today, and I think, we're, I think in some ways we're weaker for that. So let me define providence for you. Divine providence is God's governing and ordering of all times and seasons and events in all of his creation according to his wise and holy counsel, for his glory, and for the good of his people. Let me say that again. Divine providence is God governing and ordering all times and seasons and events in all of his creation according to his wise and holy counsel for his glory and for the ultimate good of his redeemed people. That's you and me for our good. Now this is very different than, uh, you know, the idea of the blind watchmaker. You ever heard of that? Ever heard of that before? The blind watchmaker. It's, it's the idea that God made everything and, he, and then he wound it up like a, a clock or a watch. And he set, so he set things in motion. But then as time goes on, it's just like a clock winding, right? It's, it's, everything's happening according to certain predetermined mechanisms, but God is mostly hands-off. He intervenes at times, but he's mostly hands-off. I don't think that's the way the scriptures define God's interaction with the world. I believe it teaches that God is providential in 
all of his creation in every event in our lives and certainly beyond us as well. And I would like to suggest that a firm reliance on divine providence over every season and time of life, your life and my life, is really the only sure foundation for enduring joy under the sun, where we live, under the sun. We don't live in the clouds. We live, well, I guess the clouds would be under the sun too, right? But figuratively, we don't live in the clouds. We live under the sun. I think without this firm reliance on divine providence, the alternative is just despair or unreality or cynicism. I don't see any other way. It's one of those three, or it's we trust in a God who is providential, who is sovereign. One of the reasons why the world looks so perplexing and futile and at times, at times deeply distressing to us is because we cannot see all that God is doing. We just can't see all that he's doing. Ecclesiastes 11.5. Listen to this. Solomon said, As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I mean, do you understand how the Spirit comes to that little baby in a mother's womb? Do you get that? I don't. How can we fathom that? And, and we also can't understand all of the works that God does. It all seems pa- puzzling to us. There's a Puritan, I'm sure others have used this analogy as well, there's a Puritan named Thomas Boston who used the, uh, the idea of a tapestry, or we might say a painting, to help us understand providence, if you were to walk up to a tapestry or a painting and put your nose right in the middle of it, all you'd be able to see is what's right in front of your nose. And it might look like a blob of black or blue. It might look like an absolute mess. You have no idea what this is all about. It's just right there in front of your nose. But if you could take a step back and see the whole tapestry, you would see a wonderful work of beauty and marvel. Life seems puzzling to us, but life, our life, life in the world, life under the sun is not puzzling to God because he sees it all. More than just seeing it all, he's working it all according to his purpose and plan and wisdom. God is governing in his wisdom and working all things according to, his, to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. So our text, verse 1, says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Let me ask you, in whose hands would you like your seasons and times to be in? The hands of a blind watchmaker? In the hands of a God who is mostly hands-off? Blind, impersonal mechanisms? Chance, your own hands, the hands of someone else, or the hands of God. Well, I'm with King David, and I think you are too. King David said this, Psalm 31, 13 and 14. He said, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. What times? My times. 
Which ones? All of them. Our times and seasons are in the hands of God. First, Solomon says there's a time to be born and a time to die. Now, I think we understand this. I hope we do. I mean, no one here decided when you were going to be born. Nobody petitioned heaven and said, I would like to have this birth date. (laughs) Didn't happen that way. And ultimately, your parents didn't decide that either. Even if they were planning a family and so forth and hoping, you know, even they didn't ultimately decide when you were born. That was decided by God. And in whose hands is the day of your dying? That too is in the hands of God. He's the governor of our birth and of our death. Our lives are in his hands. Psalm, one, excuse me, Psalm 139, 16, this is King David again, says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before you lived a single day, your days were written in God's book. Now, I've, I have, I've heard someone try to explain why this does not mean or why, how we can alter this or make it different than what's in God's book. And you have to go through a lot of gymnastics to do that. People try, though. Our days are written in God's book. The day of your birth, the day of your death, and every day in between. Later, I'm going to tell you why this is really good news. And it really is. Even though it's perplexing and challenging under the sun. Next, Solomon says there's a time to plant, there's a time to pluck up what's planted. Whether Solomon's talking about nature and heart, you know, t- times of sowing seed and harvest, or whether he's talking about planting and plucking up of nations and peoples, either way, God governs these seasons and times as well. Solomon says next, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. And think about this. Is a soldier ever killed on the battlefield because the Lord looked away for a moment or was napping? No. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up, Solomon says. Empires are raised up and empires are torn down and all of this is from the Lord. We see this all throughout the Bible. Whether it's Egypt Egypt was raised up for a purpose. God brought Egypt down or Assyria or Babylon or the Persians or Alexander the Great or Rome or America. There's a time for weeping and a time for laughing. There's a time for mourning and for dancing. There's a time for all of these things. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And all of these things are in the good hand of God. It's it's hard for us to see this because we live under the sun, right? We live under the sun. It's perplexing, it's challenging, it's bewildering. We see what's right in front of our nose on that tapestry. That's all we see. I mean, under the sun, that's what we see. Solomon tells us this is bewildering. In verse 11 of our passage, he says, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning 
to the end. We can't see to the bottom of everything. We can't. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, God has made the day of prosperity, and when he does, we should rejoice. And in the day of adversity, we should also say, well, God has made the one as well as the other. It's bewildering to us because we can't see the entire tapestry. We see with the limitations of living under the sun. We have our noses up against the tapestry. But we can, by faith, see the kind of God who is governing all of his creation, and we can entrust ourselves to him with the seasons and times of our lives, and we should. What kinds of hands are our seasons and times in? That's the question we should ask. Who is, who is this God? What is he like? Well, we could answer a lot of ways. I want to just draw out a couple of things that I think is helpful from Scripture. Our, hand, our, excuse me, our times and seasons are in the hands of inscrutable wisdom. Wisdom. God is, Paul says in, in Romans 16, he is the only wise God. Our lives are in the hands of inscrutable wisdom. The word inscrutable means beyond our ability to search something out. Romans 11.33 says, How unsearchable, God, are your judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has not, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Now, when that question is asked, all of us should say, Not me. We cannot get to the bottom of God's wisdom because God's wisdom, think about this, God's wisdom takes into account the fact that he knows everything. Right? He's never taking in knowledge that he didn't previously know. He knows everything. Not only that, but he knows what will serve his ultimate interests best. He knows what's best for us and he knows the best path to achieve the greatest manifestation of his glory and our good. That's his, he, he's wise. Maybe you've heard of something called multitasking. <laughs> Anyone ever heard of multitasking? Anyone here think you're a good multitasker? Don't raise your hand. I think it's kind of a myth, honestly. Um, <laughs> maybe not. Women, I'm sure, are better than men at this, no doubt. But I think uh, no one multitasks real well because when you move from one thing to the next, you've got to stop giving attention to this to give attention to this. God does not have that limitation. He, he does not have that limitation. God is doing billions of things at every single moment. And he can give the appropriate attention to everything that he needs to give attention to. Isn't that amazing? You see, this is one of those... Well, in my view, okay, this is my view. This is one of those teachings that helps us um, lift our eyes to see the grandeur and transcendence of God. 
it's good for us to know that God is near, that he's imminent, that he's drawn near through Christ. He's given us the spirit. He dwells within us. This is the imminence of God, but we still need to know he is transcendent. He is not just a little bit above us. He is not even just a lot above us. He is infinitely above us. He's doing a billion things at every moment. And he can give attention to every single thing, the, the, the perfect attention to every single thing so that the beautiful piece of art called redemptive history is just perfect. And your peace in that. Charles Spurgeon wrote, uh, preached a sermon on, well, actually on Psalm 31, verses, uh, verse 14. And the sermon's entitled, my times are in thy hand. And he said this, to have our times in God's hand must mean not only that they are at God's disposal, but that they are arranged by the highest wisdom. God's hand never errs. And if our times are at, in his hand, those times are ordered rightly. We need not puzzle our brains to understand the dispensations of providence. A much easier and wiser course is open to us, namely to believe the hand of the Lord works all things for the best. In Pilgrim's Progress, I can't go too long without referencing Pilgrim's Progress, okay? In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful are on a path and uh, Christian counsels them to do something that gets them off the path and eventually they fall into the hands of the dreadful giant despair and are brought into Doubting Castle and thrown into the dungeon. Anyone familiar with that story? Okay. And uh, Christian, as they're, as, as they're, well, when they get off the path, he feels terrible. Okay. If you know anything about allegories, here, so this might be helpful. Allegories, in an allegory, every character, every location, and so forth, has a corresponding spiritual reality. Okay. So Giant Despair, Doubting Castle, is how pilgrims, Christians on a journey, battle with doubt and despair. Well, so in this scene, in the book, um, Christian strays and hopeful follows him. And Christian, who had led them both off the path, felt terrible about it. And he's lamenting and apologized to hopeful. And he said, dear hopeful, I am so sorry. Can you please forgive me? And hopeful's response is, wonderful. Here's what he said. Be comforted, my brother, for I forgive you and believe too that this too shall be for our good. Interesting. Despair. Doubt. In the hands of God. Worked according to his providential wisdom. Works for our good. If your lives, excuse me, if, if our lives were not in God's hands, if they were in our own hands or subject to other people or left to chance or, you know, blind fate or whatever, you and I could never say that with confidence. We couldn't ever say, this is going to work for good. Who knows? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if our, li- if our lives, if our seasons and times are in God's hands, we most certainly can say that because our lives are in the hands of a wise father who loves us and cares for us. 
Now, you might be raising a question, or maybe before now you have raised a question. Wait a second, wait a second. Doubt and despair and adversity and death and even evil are part of God's providence? How can that be? Doesn't that make God evil? The direct author of evil? Well, to the first part, I would say yes, all these things are part of how God governs the seasons and times we live in. What we see throughout Scripture is that all of these things, times of birth and death, times of planting and plucking, times of war and peace, times of mourning and laughing, all of these things advance God's good agenda. You might say, really? Let me tell you about Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was betrayed by his brothers as a young man, teenager probably, sold into slavery, brought down to Egypt. His father thought he was dead. He was put in prison because Potiphar's wife lied about him. And all of these happens. Do you guys know how long Joseph spent in slavery and prison before he was promoted? We know when he was promoted, right? Do you know how long he was in prison and slavery before he was promoted? 13 years. 13 years. Do you think there were ever times of mourning and weeping? No doubt. For sure. He lived under the sun like you and I. He had to have thought, what on earth is going on? Perplexing. Difficult. What is happening to me? It had to have seemed futile at times. Certainly, he was discouraged. But at some point, Joseph was able to see through what his brothers did. He saw through what Potiphar's wife did. He saw through being forgotten in prison for a couple of extra years and saw what God was up to. When he revealed himself to his brother, so you remember the story, right? There was a great famine. His brother, Jacob, sends his other sons down to Egypt to get bread. And so they go down and there's this interaction with Joseph, but they don't recognize him. But then eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they're thinking, oh boy, we're in big trouble now. He's going to execute it. Our he- he's going to have our heads. But do you remember Joseph's response? It is. It, it's one of those places in the Bible that it's just one of those go-to places for Christians. You hear it all the time in prayers. He said this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, he said, you meant evil. What you did, you did it, you meant evil. God meant it for good. It doesn't just say God was responding to what they did. God meant it for good. God overruled their evil for his good purposes and plans. And so the writer of Psalm 105 could see through the actions of the brothers and everything that happened to Joseph and see what God was doing when he wrote this. Listen to Psalm 105, 
16 and 17. It says, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Who sent Joseph down to Egypt? Well, his brother sold him into slavery. But if you can see through that, it was God that sent him there. Did Joseph's brothers sell him and send him? Yep. Under the sun, that's what we see. But we also see that Joseph's times and seasons were in God's hand for good. And brothers and sisters, this story's for us. All of these stories are for us. All the Bible, all of it's for us. It's meant to instruct us and help us as we live under the sun. It's meant to help us see by faith what God is up to. Not that we know specifically, usually, sometimes God might clue us in, but we know that he's doing something. He's always working, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. I can't imagine Joseph in stocks in prison feeling warm fuzzies about what God was doing. I doubt it. Our times are in the hands of unsearchable, inscrutable wisdom. That's who our God is. And our times are also in the hands of redeeming love. Of course, the ultimate proof of God's providence resulted in our redemption. Jesus Christ, the New Testament says, was born in the fullness of time. At just the right time. According to who? According to God. At just the right time. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think we did a message on this during Christmas, during the Advent season one time, but just talking about all of the events that God was ordering leading to Christ coming. I can't remember if he did or not, or if I'm just imagining that. Or maybe that would be a good sermon to do if he didn't. All the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion. There's, there's, there's little nuggets in the Gospels that says things like they wanted to arrest him, but it wasn't yet his time. It wasn't his time yet. And then, when... It was the time. It says, I think Jesus says something like, this is your hour. Talking to Judas and those who were going to crucify him. You got one hour. All the things leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, the betrayal of Judas, Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Roman soldiers, all of it according to God's predetermined plan. What all those men meant for evil, and this was the greatest evil the world has ever known, the greatest evil, what they meant for evil, God meant for the salvation of the world. What if God had left it up to chance? What if he kind of put his plan out there and it was kind of up to blind mechanisms and hopefully... 
Well, hopefully that clock or that watch doesn't have a malfunction. Well, he didn't. And I think we're all very grateful for that. God ordered the event of the cross for his glory and our good, and he orders all the events of our lives for his glory and for our good. Our birth, our death, our mourning and dancing, our weeping and laughing, our, lo- our loving Father wastes none of it. And what if part of the Father's design for our lives under the Son is to provide perplexity and humility and point us away from ourselves and to a Redeemer? Well, you know what? That is part of his plan. So how should we live if this is true? If our times and seasons are in God's hands, how should we respond? How should we live? Because some might say, wait a second, this belief leads to fatalism. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. It doesn't matter how we live. Here's what I would say. No, that's not true. How providence, God's actions, and our actions work together Brothers and sisters, that's above our pay grade. It just is. It's, okay? But we know they do. We know that we are called, we're not robots. You got up and came to church today because you got up and came to church. Providence simply says this, there was more going on than just that. I pray when I preach, not just when I preach, but Father, you know who's going to be there on Sunday. You've appointed it. Do a work in their lives. God's appointed you to be here today. Yeah, you got up and came. No one coerced you against your will. So how should we live? I love that place in um, Lord of the Rings, okay? When it's the first book, also first movie, Frodo and Gandalf are talking, and Frodo laments. He says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time. What he means is, I, got the, I have this ring. I'm on this perilous journey. I've got to do this hard thing. The, the Middle earth is in, right, under the shadow of darkness. Darkness seems to be on the ascendancy and so forth. And Gandalf's answer is a timeless wisdom, That sounds like it could be in Ecclesiastes. Here's what Gandalf said. He said, so do I. I love that. (laughs) And so do all who live to see such times. There's things that we go through that we would not choose to go through. Obviously. So he said, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is to do with the time, excuse me, all we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. This is the time that God has placed us in. These are the seasons and times he's placed us in and it's just for us to decide what are we going to do now. We don't decide at the time and seasons in which we live That's been decided for us by God. It has been given to us by God. So what do we do 
with the time given to us? Well, Solomon tells us. Toward the end of our text, there are four exhortations, or one of them's not really in the form of an exhortation, but I'm going to exhort you from there. I think Solomon would give us four exhortations. How should we live if our times and seasons are in God's hands? First, we should fear the Lord. We should fear him. And I mean the kind of fear, a, a, a loving reverence for God. God's providence should evoke a healthy fear of the Lord. And here's what I mean. God is not in your hands. Sometimes I, th- I think maybe, maybe it's Western Christian, maybe it's just Christians today, I don't know, but we think that God is at our disposal. We kind of direct him to do, go here and do this and do that and so forth, and that's, that's not how it is. Our lives are in his hands. I, I just read this morning a quote from J.I. Packer. And I'm not going to get it exactly right. I wish I had it in front of me. But he said, life is an awesome thing when we realize that every moment of every day we are walking before the face of an omniscient and omnipresent God. It's an awesome thing. It is not a flippant thing. It is a glorious thing. Our living and dying and everything in between is in his hands. So we ought to humble ourselves in reverent worship. And just take the living and dying for a moment. Do you know when you realize that God is, my, my life, my death is in his hands and we fear, have that humble, reverent fear of him, it frees us from a thousand other fears. Really, every other fear. What is the, what is, uh, what's the first question of the New City Catechism? What was that? Oh my goodness. Not the chief end of man. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to him. It frees us from a thousand other fears when we believe this. And one fear that maybe at the top of the list that it frees us from is the fear of dying. Henry Martin was a missionary to India, I think Africa as well. He has this great quote. He said, I am immortal until God's purposes for me are done. The Lord reigns. I love that. I'm like, Lord, I want to I be convinced of that. So we fear the Lord. That's what Solomon tells us. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Second, we should be joyful. And I actually think this is the foundation for an undaunted, enduring joy. But I need, we need to understand something. I don't mean joy as just a light-hearted feeling. I think sometimes we think joy is just good vibes and a light-hearted feeling, a spring in our step. Certainly joy can include that. 
I also think sometimes we, we think that joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. It's like, today I have sorrow. I hope tomorrow I have joy. Without them mingling. But Paul said something amazing in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, I am sorrowful. Or I think he said we. I, th- I believe it's we. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And he's someone who went through pretty hard providences on his path of following Christ. If you and I can have confidence that God means everything in our lives for good, we can have a serious, undaunted, glorious joy under the sun. Verse 12 says this. I perceive that there is nothing better than for them, talking about us, than to be joyful. So we should be joyful. Number three, we should seek to do good as long as we live. This is not just sitting around. Okay, sarah, sarah. We don't do anything. It doesn't matter what we do. No, no, no. Solomon says they should do good as long as they live. Verse 12 again. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. What good has God put before you? What good thing has he put before you? What good work has he put before you? Because this too is part of his providence. Remember that that verse in uh, Ephesians 2. Paul says, For we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What good things has he put before you? Do it. And do it with all of your heart. Do it with all of your might. And finally, take pleasure in the good gifts that God gives you. Verse 13. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil for this is, excuse me, this is God's gift to man. You and I should truly take pleasure. I think we got to take that to heart. Take pleasure. Not just stoically say thank you to God. Take pleasure in the good gifts he gives us. The family he's given us. The opportunity to gather on the Lord's Day and worship. The food and drink that's on your, going to be on your table at lunch today or dinner tonight. And whether you're having a massive feast, praise God for that, or just a, maybe the cupboards are a little bare, whatever's before you, take pleasure in it and your work as well. This is God's gift. These are God's gifts, and they're to be received as gifts. So how should we live under the sun? in light of God's providence, God's governing of all things, we are called to live joyful and productive lives in the fear of God, enjoying every good, gifts that he, every good gift that he gives us under the sun as long as we live. I want to close by reading 
the words of an old hymn. It's written in 1835. I cannot remember the guy who wrote it, but it's entitled, My Times Are in Thy Hand. Here's what he said. Here's, here, here are the lyrics. I'm going to read all of it. It's not going to, it'll take two minutes. It's not long at all. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. I wonder, I wonder if we can say this as well. I mean, I'm not asking you to repeat after me, but. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hand. Why should I doubt or fear? My father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. My times are in thy hand, Jesus the crucified. Those hands my cruel sins had pierced are now my guard and my guide. My times are in thy hand. I'll always trust in thee, and after death at thy right hand I shall forever be. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the secret things belong to you, the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Father, how you work everything, how you govern all things according to your will and wise counsel, and it's going to, the end result's going to be glorious and beautiful. That's beyond us to understand. That's, that's a secret thing that belongs to you. But that you do that has been revealed in your word, and that belongs to us.